happy Women's History Month. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to the new BridgeDetroit.com. I am the institution. <laughs> Donna, it's, you have to introduce yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you already say your name? Yeah, I'm the institution. Okay, well, I don't know how to respond to I'm the institution. <laughs> so you're going to have to go. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nod to uh, the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry interview. They kept talking oh. about this. This <laughs> They kept talking about this institution. I'm like, what is uh, the institution? <laughs> So I'm Orlando Bailey. You guys didn't get the joke. It's okay. I'm Orlando Bailey. <laughs> and I'm Donna Kippens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we will be dissecting uh, the mayor of the city of Detroit, Mayor Mike Duggan, his state of the city address that he just gave uh, and wrapped up about 20 minutes ago. So uh, we are uh, excited to have community advocate Simone Lightfoot join us to dissect uh, the mayor's state of the city address, as well as my colleague, uh, senior reporter from Bridge Detroit, Louis Aguilar. Simone and Louis, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Yeah, and I want to say that Simone is much bigger than a community advocate. She is the <laughs> vice president for the National Wildlife Foundation. Is that your new title, Simone? Uh, associate vice president. Okay. We got believe, believe me, Donna. I know I know Simone's resume. I I gave her the intro she asked for. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. All right. She is <laughs> an advocate like no one. I mean, um, whenever you speak to Simone, it's Women's History Month. And so you yes. want to call on people, women who make a difference. And Simone, I just want you to know how much I admire you and appreciate the leadership that you provide, um, the strength, the backbone. You know, whenever I go off, I always know you got my back. And um, when you go off, sometimes it's just like, yes, you know, you're bringing truth to, um, um, truth to power, and we need to have that more often. Um, we had a Black History Month event last month, um, and Jamon Jordan spoke, and he talked about the influence of Black women in every single freedom struggle in the United States. And um, you are an example of a freedom fighter, and so I want to welcome you here. We're going to talk about our freedom and talk about Detroit. Thank you so much. That's so wonderful, Donna. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Can't wait. I gotta, I gotta just submit what Donna was is saying. I, you know, I'm so excited to introduce our listeners to Simone Lightfoot if they don't know her already. You all know some of the sayings of Simone Lightfoot because I quote her on this show all the time. But you get to meet, you get to meet her, and we're excited to dig in. Louis Aguilar from Bridge Detroit, the senior reporter from Bridge Detroit, as well as uh, the former reporter at the Detroit News. Louis, thank you so much for joining us. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you. We're very excited to talk to you. Uh, your stories are often uh, news stories that we cover. Don is a big fan of yours. Yeah. 
and of course I am as well. So we're excited to dive in. We know that you were live tweeting um, during uh, the mayor's state of the city. But before we get to the state of the city, we want to, uh, Lewis, we wanna come back to you and ask you a little bit about what's going on at Bridge Detroit, but we also wanna get just an update from uh, Simone Lightfoot around what she's seeing nationally post uh, the 2020 election and what is going on in the Detroit area that has implications nationally. As she always says, Detroit is big mama. I was gonna say, what's big mama doing? I'll get big mama right now. <laughs> that is so true. I often say that, that Detroit is big mama. And I use that analogy for particularly black families who's ever had maybe land issues. And, and big mama was always the one to keep the family together. But once she passed on, uh, all hell broke loose throughout the family. And that's what I liken to particularly urban centers across the country. Detroit still is the tail that wags the dog in so many spaces as far as what Detroit is doing. So goes Detroit as it relates to water. So goes Detroit as it relates to housing, as jobs, insurance, you name it. Um, Detroit matters when it comes to other urban centers. What we see now, you know, I get to work in DC a lot, that building uh, on the backdrop there, the Rayburn building, um, working with a lot of federal policy. And so I'm usually uh, dealing with how we make sure we're infusing environmental justice and people of color into the federal policy process. Now that we have a new president, things are moving. Some would like to see it move faster. I try to temper their expectations about politics and the way that it actually works and giving credence to the fact that our previous president really gutted many of our agencies. We're talking about the EPA, the DOJ, the Department of um, Ag, Interior, a lot of those positions that we don't see but are relevant and necessary uh, aren't there anymore or have been co-opted and so there's really a need to rebuild and restructure the inner workings of government. Uh, thank goodness we have Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden at the helm, people who know the process and know the role, would love to see a Joe Biden for Detroit in the sense that someone who knows the terrain but is a new and trusted voice, uh, a trusted source, mm. someone that brings a level of integrity to the office so that when they are speaking, you don't have all these veneers of not even believing the words that come out of their mouth. That's a challenge when you're leading. We need folk like that in our urban centers. Not only Detroit, we have mayoral races across the country. Uh, Birmingham, Jackson, Mississippi. We have some young dynamic mayors down there. So in making Birmingham, sure we, yeah. we keep a look and a watch on those races and, and, and assist those folk out. Um, and so I'll stop there. We'll get to talk and I'll infuse more of the, the federal stuff in our conversation. Well, the, the mayor in Jackson, Mississippi has his, um, his, he's really from Detroit. His people are from Detroit anyway. His dad, Chakwe Lumumba is from our community and he's what, Chakwe Lumumba II? And, and he's yeah. now reading Jackson, leading Jackson. I'm really excited. And another time I wanna to talk to you about Jackson Rising and the movement that is there around cooperative ownership and cooperative development that I think we could really learn from in our community. Um, but that's for another day. It's clearly not the direction of the city of Detroit right now. Um, we are having other types of conversations and I've read some books about the financialization of Detroit and the financialization of our urban policy. And it seems as though you're either going to financialize or become more cooperative, but you can't do both at the same time. 
So we'll get into that. Um, Lewis, welcome. It's so great to have you on. Um, I, I've never yeah. talked to you, but I read your articles all the time and you always give me so much information. Speaking of oh, truth thank you. Power, that's what you're doing at um, Bridge Detroit. Thank you very much. I'm a fan of you all too. <laughs> <laughs> We appreciate just a love fest happening. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate that, Lewis. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you are working on and will be working on within uh, the foreseeable future over at Bridge. Uh, well, I'll be covering a lot of uh, development issues. I mean, I, it's interesting, as you know, I was an investigative reporter for Detroit News for a number of years, and really that meant Dan Gilbert and the Illiches. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was just... Uh, they were doing a lot, but I mean, I was always aware that we were only telling one part of the story and that uh, we were not telling the story of the neighborhoods, which is a much bigger story. Uh, and so I'm happy to delve into uh, the development and the equity of development throughout the city and the uh, just really trying to tell uh -huh. the whole story. Uh, it's very compelling is to it me. me? To, yep. Must be me. So, oh, sorry. All right, it looks like we're having a little bit of technical difficulties. Donna um, uh, was having some audio issues, but Lewis, we certainly look forward to uh, reading more of your coverage around development and neighborhoods. I want to uh, switch gears, uh, certainly, because why we are all here is to, you know, really react to what uh, Mayor Mike Duggan uh, said and touted, the victories he's touted, the challenges that he outlined in his 2021 State of the City Address. And, you know, um, I have to say that, you know, the theme that I think that he wanted to come across, and I'm not certain if it came across the way that he wanted it to was equity. I kept hearing yeah. him mention um, the word equity. And so I would say if he had to theme his speech, I think that was the theme he was going for. But I really want to get all of your uh, just initial reactions to uh, the state of the city. Donna, we can start with you, my co-host. <laughs> start with me. Um, I'll just say really quickly that um, when you use terms like equity, you want them to mean something. And um, before we use those terms, we have to come to a shared definition because um, do people who he is speaking about in general, not just the ones he um, you know, kind of um, cherry picks to be in his videos, but do people in the city of Detroit really believe that what is happening is equitable? Do people who live near the expansion of Fiat Chrysler believe that taking down and giving Fiat Chrysler a now Stellantis St. Jean, which is a Conner Creek Greenway, and not replacing that Greenway with anything green while increasing the emissions of pollution in our community. Does that feel like equity? Does it feel equitable to give $15,000 or $20,000 per home in the streets adjacent to a expanding plant where a berm with trees and grass and bushes is replaced with a wall. We're building walls in Detroit, y'all. Um, does that feel like equity? And um, so, I mean, I think that when you use terms, they mean something. And I also think that it's important that we speak truth to power, speak truth, period. And so when there is a conversation about Detroiters being offered jobs first, um, which is untrue, 
um, there's a concern there. I mean, the people who were offered jobs at that plant first were people who were already working for um, Fiat Chrysler, now Stellantis in some way, shape or form. Detroiters got an opportunity to interview for jobs before anybody else did. People who've received offer letters still aren't sure if those offer letters are secure. Um, there are people who were given jobs and allowed to go other places. And then there are people who worked in the suburbs who are Detroiters who are now working in the city of Detroit. Those aren't necessarily new jobs. They just got reassigned to Detroit and it makes it look good. I would love to see transparency and accuracy. And in my conversations with members of the Neighborhood Advisory Council for the expansion, um, I don't know that it's there. I think there's questions that are unanswered when I read the free press and the news and, and, and British Detroit and I see these jobs numbers reported, I'm like, huh? And then this idea that Detroiters at Work was the, 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 the entity that did all of this and we got low-income Detroiters into jobs. I think that a lot of that bears um, a lot of um, investigation. And then when you look at the amount of money that was spent assembling the land um, versus every job that was created, even if you had 4,000 jobs, how much did we pay per job? And now that Fiat Chrysler is Stellantis, how do we know that those jobs are going to continue? I mean, I think seniority means that the last hire is the first hire, but I don't know how this all this works, right? And if it does, then some of those jobs could be very short term because Stellantis is not committed to maintaining the size of its workforce. And as people who've been there for 20, 30 years lose their jobs, wherever they are, they will be given a chance to locate and possibly bump out some of the people who are here. And then finally, finally, when they come, there's no commitment that they're going to live inside the city of Detroit. So to what extent did our investment as Detroiters subsidize housing and relocation and uh, operations in the areas around Detroit, which by the way, the trade-off for increasing pollution to Detroit was we were going to decrease it in the suburbs. That's the offset. And so that is, you know, textbook environmental racism, and it doesn't get talked about in these pretty little job stories that I heard tonight. <laughs> Lewis, uh, you've covered the state of the city addresses for uh, years now. I'm anxious to hear your initial reaction on Mike Duggan's state of the city with the theme of equity. <laughs> well, I mean, as everyone knows, these are really more state of uh, the mayor's policies more than state of the city. It is a very, uh, he's an adept politician. He knows how to tell a compelling narrative. I, but, you know, the thing really for most critical uh, thinkers is really to sort of think about the things he's not mentioning. And there is a lot of glossing over. He's telling these things in the best way possible. And, you know, it's up to people to decide whether that's that's palatable or not. Uh, but going to uh, the point of equity, the thing that sort of, there was a section where he was trying to talk about equity and neighborhood development, and he quickly transitioned into the Amazon deal. And uh, I forget what the, the state, or what, there was another deal, uh, maybe the a deal it was with a deal Maroon. inside of a deal with, you know, the, the yeah. company that the tour goes on, you know, the yeah. tour. And so what I, in my, what I thought is like, oh, that is, it seems to sum up his idea of how neighborhood development will, 
will prosper. We need these big deals to make neighborhoods better. I mean, he tried this directly, like we're gonna build parks because Amazon's coming to the state fairgrounds. And that really seems to sum up his approach, I think, to development, sort of the, the make the big deals first before everything else could happen. And I don't think he consciously meant that, but the way he, he started talk, talking about neighborhood development and equity, and then he quickly, once again, went back into his old habit of, look at this great deal of a lot of jobs I just accomplished. Well, so that really kind of summed up his philosophy to me and his approach to these things. Well, they got a park at Amazon. I want a Greenway. Small sure. yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, I was like, well, where's our Greenway? <laughs> sure. But Donna, you know, uh, I, I, I want Simone to get in on this, but I, I, I want to also emphasize and inform our listeners in case they didn't know that during the Neighborhood Advisory Council process for the Fiat Chrysler expansion, the voices of longstanding nonprofits like Eastside Community Network and longstanding businesses were silenced. There was no entry point for the voice of longstanding businesses and 36-year-old nonprofit organizations serving that community within that process, period. But Simone, I'm anxious I'm to well, since you brought that up, it's important <laughs> that I say this, and I'm sorry, Smoke, because you know how oh, we love you. No. But the expansion, that plant was expanded directly behind our offices, directly behind our offices. And at the time, I used to joke and say, I can stand in my backyard and see Fiat Chrysler. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite true, because we had some bushes and some trees there, and then they took the bushes down, and now I can stand in my parking lot and see Fiat Chrysler. And so, you know, there's no vegetative buffer, no nothing. The city negotiated. I think I, I may have the name wrong, but I think Anthony Suave purchased land after they said that they were going to do this deal. After he, after the talks began, he purchased land and sold it to the city to sell to Fiat Chrysler as part of the assembly. They talked about purchasing our land and including us and relocating our organization and then decided, no, I guess we didn't um, have enough campaign contributions or enough value somehow to even be considered because as much as I love our space and we are going to be doing great things with it, to have a polluting plant just behind your space and have the polluter. And next to it on both sides. And next to it on both sides and have the polluter not be required to put a single buffer up, not a tree, not a bush, not a hedge. Just keep on doing operations and then tell me, oh, the air quality is not so bad. And where's my air filter for my building so that when people are coming to our building, our lungs are kept safe. So this is oh. personal for me. And I apologize for um, this because when somebody does this in your backyard, it feels like disrespect. And so equity and disrespect can't coexist. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, the plant, the new plant? Because, you know, I'm curious because the Ford Corktown uh, investment in the train station and other buildings, it really did sort of spark uh, a lot of, of purchases of homes in the area. I mean, it really increased the real estate value of everything. And I'm curious if it's if that you've seen any impact on houses going up for sale. I mean, the real estate value going up has it had any sort of uh, I don't know if you would call a positive impact, but at least people's homes are worth more than they used to be. I'll just say this: um, the East Side is no Corktown. Um, yeah. 
Oh, we aren't seeing that. What we're seeing is that people are living behind a wall, noises increase, people are concerned about corrupt pollution. The wall is not pretty, although they put, they are going to paint a mural on the wall. You know, there's a Burwood wall, and people look at that as a symbol of oppression. But we now have a Benetton wall, and that Benetton wall is a symbol of something that is not good in the community. People mm. say that their homes are shaking, and so if anything, there is a feeling that the value of the homes and the, the, the benefit of living in that community has decreased. Now, I will say that there has been targeted demolition along the street, but even the demolition has left some um, some people concerned about how it's been done. But I, I, I do uh, want to let Simone jump in here because I know you have so much you. to say. Well, you know, that's, there's so much that you touched on. I'm glad you are talking about buffers. That's so important and, and not something to let go of, whether it's working with the city to address it and make some differences or even working with nonprofits who have funds to come in and actually help put trees and buffers up um, their own selves. And so I just encourage you to keep uh, pushing on that. When it comes to the, the mayor's state of the city, I thought, I, I appreciate you on the equity. I thought jobs, he really talked a lot about jobs um, in his conversation, but like Donna, it's, I needed evidence. I don't like listening to people that I don't trust. You know that? It's just really hard because even when they say good things or positive things, you're suspect. And so you have this side eye going the whole time they're speaking and you're listening with such a critical ear that you really don't have the, the um, luxury, I guess, of just listening and being happy for the good things and concerned about some other areas. You're just concerned and critically listening about to every word. I struggle when I hear people not be very explicit when it comes to race these days. I don't like you saying um, people of color or minority when you are talking about, quote, the benefits to black people. Call it, call it black, break it down. And he did that in some areas, but then in other areas, when he talked about businesses benefiting. businesses. There you go. And, and so- That could be women. That could be a multitude of things, but generally if it's women, it's said to be women. And if it's black, it's said to be black. And so when those things are not said, it's easy to assume it's other than. And that's a problem because you don't get to tell black people how their lives are improving, but then not explicitly break out their numbers and their impact. Um, and so that's Shady McGrady work to me, that's politics. And I don't mean to, to uh, act like I don't know what I know about it, but it's just, uh, you gotta call that kind of stuff. It, in this day and age, is so important. The other thing I'll say is when I hear people call for transparency, the first thing I say these days, they must not be in charge of nothing. Um, if they call in for transparency, they probably not in charge of nothing. And the other thing I say is it's equivalent to saying you'll go home and take your blinds and your shades and your curtains down and you and your family will live that way. That's what asking a politician to be transparent is equivalent to because their job is to be the steward of the resources or the institution. And so they're not going to tell you often the shortfalls of that institution or that stewardship. They're just gonna laud and lift and praise their stewardship of that, that institution. Um, and so you won't get that transparency. You should call for it, absolutely. The advocate side of me says, absolutely, you call for it. But you'll do better these days getting leaks 
getting video FOIA requests, getting FOIAs. I mean, that's and 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 Mr. Duggan is the king of, of if you want to know what's going on with Mr. Duggan, it has always been a FOIA required as mm -hmm. or, or someone snitching or telling. And that's been his days with McNamara, his days at DMC, his days as prosecutor. He's consistent. That's the one thing I must say about <laughs> We he, know that struggle at Bridge Detroit. <laughs> he is consistent. Um, it, was, it was kind of painful listening to the state of the city I've, um, in that it didn't feel like the state of a city. It wasn't as regal as I think I would have appreciated. Um, where it's more formal. And when he uses words like riding dirty or getting screwed, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's real interesting um, lingo that he can get away with, with privilege to say certain things. I think others saying or using those kind of words would be called out um, very quickly by particularly uh, the, the greater media. Um, but he did his thing, you know, I mean, that's, he did a great job name dropping. He did a great job giving credit to his friends. Uh, and he named some of them several times. And so he is an astute politician that way. But the last thing I'll say and, and, and pass the mic, it's really interesting to watch him though, because he still operates from days of old with his politics, even though so much has changed in the way politics actually works and so i look forward to seeing um to seeing how what he is saying and pursuing will will work uh, the way in which he does it i actually I, I thank you for that comment because you know i think when i think of mike duggan i think of a master storyteller he is a masterful uh narrative builder uh, he is consistent in messaging and he knows how to paint a picture and tell a story, a compelling one at that. I also think of a well-oiled systematic machine. When I think of Duggan, I think of a McNamara machine. I think of a Mayor Daly out of Chicago kind of political uh, machine, um, you know, very top heavy and very powerful. So powerful that he can tell the television stations, sorry, I'm going over. Y'all gotta deal. <laughs> Y'all have to deal uh, with that. Um, or, you know, run it on your website. You know, I've, I haven't in my lifetime, I don't think I've seen a politician this powerful at the head um, of, of city government here in the city of Detroit. And clearly uh, so flawed, though. I, I think. I could understand it better if he weren't as flawed, nobody's perfect, but yeah. as flawed, as established flawed, as long history flawed. And I'll push back a little bit on the storytelling. I think in the age of Trump, he's a horrible storyteller. I think he makes stories up. I think some of the things, his narrations tonight were very, um, uh, you make up what you need to, well, then he said this and then she said that, and it was just all very convenient. And I think he tells stories as if, He's the star of all of the shows. And I said to them, we're going to have a better, and I said, and, and usually what I found is he has to be compelled to do the right thing. It is not an instinctive, innate thing for him to just do the right thing. It's something that takes a lot of hell raising, a lot of pushing, and then he comes around and does what he needs to do, but then he narrates it as if it were his idea the whole time and he masterfully believed in it. And so I think his storytelling used to be better. I, after Trump... I call him Trump before Trump. I really do, because we've had to deal with that type of behavior a long time here.
but uh, I think he's just more transparent in how bad of a storyteller he is after Trump. I don't know. I, I, you know, every time, I, every state of the city, um, I make up my mind to move to Detroit. So um, I've been here for seven years, but I just keep on coming back. I'm like, I'm moving to Detroit. They got all the problems solved in Detroit. You know, <laughs> in the community and really dealing with people who don't have stable housing, people who don't live in places where they, they feel are safe, people who have housing but can't afford to maintain it with, you know, flooding in their basements and, and leaky roofs. And, you know, the plumbing didn't all get fixed the way it got told. And so I think the reality is that when you tell stories like that and happy stories, and I, I'm going to kind of agree with Orlando, I think the storytelling is there, but I think that it makes it seem as though everything is okay now. And everything is okay for a certain type of person. I found myself really resenting the program that relocates people in Delray and they give them this shiny new house. And this is what the city does because the city cares. Cause I'm like, well, you know what? I know some folks who need a new damn house and I need, they need to know the city cares. And so this um, kind of, um, sure. this, I think Simone is getting at about doing the right thing. You're doing this because it serves a goal. We need a housing policy in the city of Detroit that says every person matters. We're going to try to pour yeah. into resources into the homes. And wasn't there a great big story about home repair? Louis, was that you? Um, yes, it was. Yeah. Home crisis in the city. These yes. people living in homes that are falling apart are taxpayers. And we know they paid their taxes because they're in their homes, number one. Number two, they are people who have been a lot of times just taking care of the whole neighborhood. I met this beautiful woman today who came to an event online that we had um, last week or the week before around Black history. And she just called me up and said, I want to get more involved in your organization. And she's telling her story about her commitment and her husband's commitment to the city. And I swear I was almost in tears. What a beautiful human being. And that is who Detroit is. We have so many beautiful human beings who have made a way out of no way for themselves, the children and the kids across the street. And so we need a mayor and we need our mayor, whoever the mayor is to care about them and not just give them lip service and pretty stories and happy talk, but actually care about them by way of committing resources and coming up with a program. If you're so smart and we spend all of this time hearing about all the clever things the mayor has done, use your political capital and use your genius to figure out how to house the most unfortunate people in our city, the people who have been harmed by every single kind of crisis, this economic and not of their making. And then when I hear about wanting to care about people and caring about people, I think of those people who were overtaxed $600 million. And they're so, oh, listen, that didn't happen on my clock. Well, the bankruptcy absolved us of this. And so it feels like selective caring. Um, and, and, you know, so the I think glaring miss that that went unacknowledged and he just sort of grazed yeah. over some of the work of, you know, yeah. property tax justice warriors. Lewis and Donna and Simone talk about let's talk about what wasn't said, because as uh, things yeah. that were said, the things that weren't said also were resounding. Let's talk about that $100 million taxation. Let's talk about the lawsuit against the Detroit Real Breed yep. organization. Lewis, I'm going to bring you in here. I don't think he mentioned the word, the phrase uh, Black Lives Matter once. I mean, he talked about the, he's going to 
deal with the backlog of criminal cases. Yeah. But that, that was as close as he got. I mean, as to talking about the sweeping demand for change, huge change in police reform and uh, and developments and uh, the $600 million in property taxes. Uh, all of that was not mentioned at all. I mean, that was, I didn't think he would mention it, but I thought somehow he would at least say Black Lives Matter at one point, <laughs> but he did not. He just really went into, here's what I, here's how we're going to backlog the gun cases. And here, you know, we're going to do something quickly about this spike in uh, homicides. And so it was, uh, I was, that was really surprising to me that he didn't really, he didn't talk about it at all. He spent very little time on it. And that, those were glaring admissions to me. And those are the, yeah, I mean, when it came to development, it really, I mean, it was so much more about the big development and it took 50 minutes for him to talk specifically anything about it. neighborhood improvement. 15 minutes for him to mention neighborhoods. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, he's never said Black Lives Matter. Let's be clear. Power to the people, Donna. At Black Lives Matter places, we had a power to people plaza. Power to the people. That, that speaks to the hesitancy to even use the word black. Black is not a curse word, okay? I love being black. You can you can say it, okay? My life matters and I'm not trying to hide and minimize my identity. And so when I see the mayor of the blackest big city in America uncomfortable with using the word black, that concerns me. Um, but I think you know, it's also fair to say that he is countersuing um, the protesters in federal court right now. And so um, I would love to hear him say he's dropping that lawsuit, that uh, all of the nefarious accusations against them are being, um, you know, dropped, and that they're going to acknowledge the fact that we saw somebody being held in a chokehold in a picture, and no, he did not slip into a chokehold, that was a chokehold the failure of the city to take responsibility for the behaviors of some of the police officers during these protests is stunning to me. Um, and so I think that policing and police relations is an issue. You know, Chief Craig is blaming everything but Chief Craig for the rise in violence towards policing and the rise of violence inside of our communities. It's COVID's fault. It's Black Lives Matter's fault. Well, maybe it is your job, Chief to build relationships with the community so that people are not in the position that they are right now or have this level of anger and hostility towards policing. Violence is never acceptable, but it seems to me as though police chief has a political responsibility as well as a bureaucratic responsibility. And I see his politics really aligning with Fox News and his bureaucratic responsibility really you know, being an internal thing where maybe people who work closely with him see the value of that. But I think policing was a big absence and I don't blame him for missing it because there's nothing good he can say right now about the crime rate, about police community relations. The only thing we know is that he's going to increase spending on policing. And, um, and in, a, in the context of cutting the budget overall, we're gonna be increasing the percentage of dollars. So we're not defunding, we're increasing funding in Detroit. Simone, what was missing that was so glaring and loud for you? Education, I think. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double edged sword because of the way the structure of the city, the mayor doesn't quote have purview over the, the schools in Detroit. Um, 
but it's important what the schools do for what he's trying to accomplish in the city. And so having more conversation around that and, and more um, conversation around how he is working with Dr. Vidi. I was on earlier today with Dr. Vidi and President Peters and um, of the board and they were speaking with the NAACP about returning to school and what they need and to, um, to make sure that parents are, are comfortable, teachers are comfortable. And so having the mayor sort of have their back and, sh and communicate that he's in communication and working with the schools uh, would have been, would have been uh, nice to, to, uh, to hear. It was interesting to hear him give kudos to the governor though um, about some things that, you know, behind the scenes that they didn't happen the way in which he was saying them. Um, but he, again, did a good job on, on, other than that, I think, Dr. Vitti, on tapping into the, he even talked about Rashida Tlaib and, and uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's really lifting up El Sayed, uh, which is interesting. So that politics, the politics, you know, that we see down the line, we'll see, I'm sure. It's always interesting. Well, you know, he pissed a lot of people off um, with, you know, meeting with Duggan and working on this, this water, uh, a moratorium, uh, working on some sort of uh, permanent solution, but bypassing the people who have been on the front lines of uh, water activism in this city uh, for years, uh, while trying to, you know, do what the mayor wanted him to do, but also relay and act as this, this, uh, this messenger on both sides it really it really blew up in his face and i understand why the mayor sort of talked about that pretty quickly <laughs> because <laughs> folks, were, folks were folks were not happy <laughs> folks were not happy with how that uh was rolled out and folks were not happy particularly with uh abdul you know a lot of folks especially activists on the front lines felt uh, a sense of betrayal um, from Abdul El Sayed going back to work in the um, institution. You know, one of the things that, you know, I want to talk about, um, num two questions. Number one, is jobs going to fix Detroit? Because he talked a lot about jobs. And is that all that Detroiters need? And then number two, uh, this, this support of businesses that he touted. And one of the things that um, I, I just, I have to bring up is, you know, the capital flow to jobs during the, the COVID era uh, in the form of loans or even small grants. And he touted um, uh, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of oh, yeah. Chase, um, with this line of credit uh, that uh, he essentially gave. And touted it, you know, like as a thank you to Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase oh, yeah. owns Detroit. Yes. yes, you better know it. When we talk about the economic collapse of yep. 2008, J.P. Morgan Chase got away with so much. And so now you are, you're painting this picture as yeah. This philanthropic picture, like, oh, I, I, I have a heart, and we, we want to give, and we want to help. You owe us, and yeah. it shouldn't be in loans. Yeah. We're getting pennies on the dollar from that, from right. them. That's, That's right. what financialization means, though, right? It means that what you do is you have your policy working towards the financial priorities and interests of banks. 
-hmm. Everything is, um, you measure success by whether or not housing values are increasing and bankable people are moving into the community. You give out money and dole out money based on the credit worthiness of the people. So you can take money that is meant for helping the underserved and the needy and translate that into funds or, you, and, and, or use it instead to help people who are deemed worthy of those funds. And you, you have the same metrics to decide who gets what as a bank has. You make decisions based on that. We're, our city is really, I mean, when Jamie Dimon says $100 million is committed, most of that is money that he's going to loan and earn money back off of because these are loans. And so Detroit is an investment um, you know, pool or, or source of investment. And so I, I think that, that that's there. The other thing I want to talk about missing though is there's nothing I hate more than the people plan. First of all, because I don't know when we started using bad English, but isn't it the people's plan? Um, it, it should be, but the people plan, you know, it feels like be best. I, somehow <laughs> stop conjugating verbs and, and it's just confusing to me. I don't really understand this new grammatical stuff, but, um, but the people plan annoys me. But we also have Detroiters Bill of Rights that's out there. And that the city has gone to length to say it doesn't make sense because now you're talking about policy making that is not based on the interests of banks and on the interests of financial institutions and corporations, but policy making that puts people right at the center. The Detroiters Bill of Rights is the people's plan, okay? That's the plan for the people that says the city is going to prioritize how it operates. And so the mayor is fighting back and saying, oh no, we're going to go into debt if we implement this plan. And, you know, we will go into debt if we implement this plan, if we don't stop serving the interests of banks and corporations mm -hmm. and assembling land to give to all of these banks and corporations so that we can purchase jobs. Um, so I think that in my view, um, it was the absence of a strategy that really addressed the kinds of issues that I'm hearing people talk about. A water moratorium paid for by the state which does not require reprioritization of how you spend your money mm -hmm. is not policy change. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, a windfall. We won't do this yet, but while we're not cutting off your water, the clock is still ticking every mm -hmm. month. You're getting a bill. And since you're working from home, your bill is higher than ever. Mm -hmm. And when all is said and done, you may owe three, $4,000. And after that moratorium ends, if, if, Abdul doesn't work some magic with Biden and come up with a way to absolve you of that debt, you're going to have an issue. And then he said, you know what, if people don't pay their water bills, well, that's going to be unfair to the neighbors, you know, and he actually had this conversation with me when he says, you know, people can afford to pay, you know, people who are making $50,000 a year can afford to pay, we need to ask them to pay and I'm like, when did $50,000 a year become a whole lot of money, because yeah. I, you, you know, but we live in a city where corporations have millions of dollars of back bills and their water doesn't get shut off. We have live in a city where big corporations have millions of dollars of accumulated stormwater drainage fees and their properties are not seized by the county. And so I think that when we really look at how um, decisions are made, the People's Bill of Rights ensures that if anybody gets a tax break, it's gonna be a citizen. If anybody does uh, is allowed to not pay their bill, it's going to be a citizen. 
and the lowest income citizens are gonna have their needs met first. And that's what I want to hear more of. I want to know that he's read it, he's reflected on it, and it's somehow showing up in policy for the city. And I didn't hear that today. I wanna bring uh, Lewis and Simone in on this, but I wanna give the numbers for the donors, um, for the people plan that the mayor is talking about. GM gave $1 million. Uh, the Kellogg Foundation gave 1.9 million. United Way, 500,000. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, 500,000. TCF Bank, 500,000. JP Morgan Chase, 500,000. Amazon, 300,000. And the Kresge Foundation, 500,000. He seems to have a great relationship with philanthropy, you guys, don't you think? Go ahead, uh, Simone or Lewis. Yeah, no question. He always has, though. I mean, yeah. you know, always has. Um, and people don't realize how philanthropy drives a lot of policy in not only our city of Detroit, but in the region, particularly Southeast Michigan. Um, it's, it's, it's huge the way they align and they, it doesn't matter who's the governor. Uh, we've watched the philanthropy, those in philanthropy fund efforts from Rick Snyder all the way to Granholm to Whitmer. And so uh, yes to philanthropy as far as the, the amount of sway that they, um, they absolutely have. You know, when we were talking about, one of the things he talked about that was interesting to me, though, was, did you have a specific question that I'm not answering? Because I wanted to get oh, on the, go for it. Okay, on the, um, the, the speed bumps. I was happy to hear speed bumps coming in certain areas, interested to know where they are. Um, is it the higher end homes or is it in the neighborhoods? would be absolutely nice. The alley cleanup was huge. I'm, I grew up at the time where the trucks used to come through the alley um, uh, at, at our house. And so now we've seen them overgrown, but I'd love to see us add some greening of those alleys. They don't have to go all back to just the way they used to be. We could have some ways to help property owners with those runoff fees and those drainage fees that are being paid. And so it matters if, we have green space in some of our alleys, particularly those alleys that people say, you know what, the seven houses or 12 houses that service this alley aren't gonna use our garage. So we're okay leaving some grass in the alley. It doesn't have to be all concrete over. Um, so those are innovative ways to do greening of some of those spaces would be helpful. I was happy to see the side lot program uh, working so well, if you will. The, the question there was, he said that it was mainly Detroiters who were already residents that were uh, purchasing those lots, which is yeah. different from the way they do the houses. If there's a structure on the property, then those can get bundled and sold to somebody from wherever, um, a whole different kind of dynamic. So I did appreciate some of those things that he said were, um, were working the for, for uh, closure prevention assistance. Would love to see though the true numbers and the evidence, I guess is my question, back to trust again, the evidence of how he is um, sort of substantiating and calculating those, those uh, things. But you know, one last thing I'll say on this, I'm interested in how all of my mayors are gonna do, all the mayors. Urban centers across this country are getting slammed with their COVID budgets. And I'm watching the counties have to do the same thing. And then I'm watching states attempt to balance their budgets uh, as it relates to COVID. So this relief coming out of DC will be absolutely essential and powerful, but it still doesn't take away the firing furloughs and layoffs that we're seeing at our county 
and our city levels of government. So just like I talked about Mr. Trump hollowing out government in DC, the cost, the income or the lack of that from my cities, particularly my cities who lean heavily on their sports, their uh, arenas, their downtowns, their entertainment with, I mean, we're talking 30% budget gaps in some of my cities because of how much they've structured their budget around their downtown and their entertainment um, centers. And so I think we're gonna need to buckle up for another good 24 months um, around economics and, and COVID and allowing this administration to get back what it needs in place. And so we're gonna be relying on organizations like you all at the local level to still be of service to the community until government can kind of get themselves and schools uh, fully back, back in order. Lewis, you know, I can share because you wrote a story about you know the the potential budget shortfall, especially via income tax. Lewis, your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, actually, I could talk a little bit about a story that I'm going to write tomorrow in terms of uh, what Detroit is going to get from the uh, American Rescue Plan, as it's being called. That will likely pass Wednesday morning, uh, and Biden, President Biden, is expected to sign by the end of the week. But Detroit is actually going to do quite well. They're going to get uh, $879 million, uh, from the package just sort of to help it recover its losses from uh, revenue, tax revenue uh, from COVID. And that doesn't include other provisions in terms of, uh, you know, the stimulus checks, uh, specific tax breaks for uh, schools, small businesses and things like that. But that 879 million, uh, which, you know, put it in context, that's about two times what Obama was able to do in terms of uh, giving Detroit aid during the Great Recession. Uh, so it's a huge number. Uh, and so Detroit's gonna do quite well in terms of that. Um, but you're right, it doesn't address, there are, there are fundamental changes that I think Detroit's going to have to grapple with. One is the loss of office workers. I mean, they it's unclear of how many people who used to work in Detroit offices and live in the suburbs are going to come back and work in those Detroit offices. The city expects there's going to be a 10% loss, permanent loss of those kind of workers. And income tax is the major source of revenue for the city. So that's a long-term pain that they sort of have to try to figure out. Well, one of the things I'm interested in investigating is exactly how much money is captured in the Downtown Development Authority TIF. Mm. How much money are yeah. they sitting on? And how much money is therefore not available to the general fund budget because it is in this tax it's capture instrument effect? How much money is in all kinds of TIFs in the city of Detroit? We need to really understand um, what our revenue structure is. I know that there are other cities and counties in Michigan that have really challenged the downtown development authority statutes because it robs local municipalities of income. And when you're an income shortfall, like we are right now, telling residents to do more with less because of our reliance on income tax, when there are property taxes that are, um, you know, sort of left alone is, is something we need to look at. And I also think we need to evaluate the real impact of all of the tax concessions to all of these people coming into the city where we said, okay, you know what, you don't have to pay taxes. Maybe it looked like we were flush with income, although the city has continuously told low-income people in the neighborhoods that there's not enough. We have austerity neighborhood budgets and 
you know, these very full downtown budgets. But we're at a point right now where we have these, all of these tax write-offs. I believe the last I heard, Michigan was second in the nation in terms of the tax, um, what do they call them? The tax exemptions that are given to businesses. Second in the nation. Um, and I think New Orleans was number one. So we're trying to bribe them to come here. And I wanna see how those bribes are paying off um, because I think we're going to right now have to look at restructuring taxes all over the, the state, all over the nation, really look at these tips and whether or not the tips are doing what they need and whether some legislation can allow for more flexible use of tips. I think we need an entertainment tax in Detroit. And I've talked about that before. Um, we need to look at the impact of the Headley Amendment when property values fall and you can never recover the lost property income inside of communities. All of that has to be revisited. We've got to get back to the conversation about revenue sharing and whether or not we're getting our full um, share from revenue sharing because I believe local economies were already in danger and some of them will collapse under the weight of COVID-19 unless we have conversations about revised tax policy. And I would love to hear the mayor of Detroit lead some of these conversations, go to Lansing and say, you know what, change the DDA laws so that my community, people aren't just told that they have to suffer and I'm sorry it has to be this way because this is what the law says because laws can be changed. Uh, what worked? Did you hear anything that, um, that affirmed, uh, some of your concerns that answered some of your concerns? Uh, did you hear anything that, uh, you were happy to hear? Um, Lewis, we could start with you. I, Nothing surprised me. I thought that this would be the broad strokes that he would go over. I mean, um, I don't know if worked is the right answer, but I was reminded from time to time, well, he really does know how to spin a good narrative. Uh, I mean, I'm just saying that in the non-job, like, well, he does convey a sense of leadership and vision. I mean, it's up to you whether you want to believe it or not, but I mean, he, he is good at this. He's good at, uh, you know, promoting this idea, this vision that he has. Um, you know, I mean, he's always been able to do that, I think. Um, um, I, I do want to bring up something I was surprised that he brought up, uh, that it was his relationship with the billionaire maroon companies, uh, the owners of the Ambassador Bridge and plenty of Detroit property that's quite unused and often the source of controversy. And that's, they are so unpopular in Southwest Detroit. I just can't, I, uh, I just thought why that, that is such a miscalculation to bring that up in a voter. And then he said the Maroons are doing stuff. They're doing yes. things for Detroit now. Like, yes, that was, there was a string of uh, where he, he just sort of very rapid fire. Like no, the Illiches are doing well. And Dan Gilbert's keeps going. And, uh, you know, it was just like, wow, okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, overall, I mean, you know, just the pack, I mean, the presentation, there were nice videos, there were nice little vignettes of, uh, you know, the, the small business, the uh, Good Cakes, is that what it's called? Like, sorry. Good Cakes and Bakes, and shout out to King uh, Yanni yeah. in the buff. Yeah, yeah. He had his buffs on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's inspiring. Oh, I mean, 
Um, you you want to know what I thought worked? I thought that he did. I think he, I thought he did an okay job walking back his Johnson and Johnson comments. Number one about that Johnson and Johnson vaccine, but also announcing that hopefully by May, every Detroiter can get vaccinated. How he has done vaccinations in Detroit, and I think I was on the podcast last week giving him kudos and tipping my hat to the operation, it's masterful. Um, and I was surprised to hear that we're actually behind in getting our citizens vaccinated. That's what, well, at least that's what he said behind other cities. But the I participated yesterday, I had to take my grandmother um, to get vaccinated and what a process, a seamless and really, really pleasurable, I could say, uh, process. And so yeah. I thought he did right in, uh, you know, touting the, the vaccine operation. I didn't on the Johnson Johnson. He said I should have done more research. More research. Yeah. Well, first of all, don't you have a staff? That, what the heck? <laughs> so I thought that was a horrible uh yeah th that was bad but um he at least fell on the sword which is generally yeah, not something yeah which is generally not something that that he does so and uh, so anyway but I thought I'd love to see the black contractors in there love some of them I know and so I look forward to talking to them offline to find out if it's really as glorious as it was, was laid out. <laughs> today but it was nice to see them in there more than one more than two um i'd like to see more though and it's still not enough to me that many of them have small comparatively speaking contracts to others um they should be centered and featured and and a hedge of protection put around so that they are more in the loop all of them because they uh, those companies he named have been here and been in Detroit and stayed. And then I love that the housing subsidies were being extended. That's critical um, across all of my cities. What, one thing I say when I sit at federal tables now, I'll never sit and say 10 or 12 years like with Katrina is long enough for people to uh, be in a housing situation and before they go to market rate. Because when you think of a child 10, 12 years old, now you got to pack up and move um, and move somewhere outside of New Orleans in many instances because gentrification has made the prices rise so high. And so when we're talking about those kind of subsidies, we need to be talking 18 to 21 years minimum so that we think of a child, if that child is born, he at least can graduate high school um, and then ideally help mom go find a new place as we all have to leave now, quote unquote, but be more humane. The other thing Donna touched on was what she'd like to see Many of those things are antithetical. I, you know, I served in elective office before and, and many of the requests are antithetical to the office itself. Um, Mr. Duggan has shared that his interest is corporate interest. It's not prioritizing citizens first. And so he's been consistent. Our desire to see him do different is kind of interesting on our part, if you will, and not that we shouldn't ask for it, but he's given us the best that he has and we should trust that. Um, and if that is sufficient, then we vote to reelect it. And if it's not, then we vote and do um, something, something a little different. I, I absolutely agree with that, Simone. Um, but I think that um, the statement is sort of like, this is what I expect to see or I need to see from my mayor before I'm satisfied, right? We have had mayors in the city of Detroit who have committed themselves to the well-being of people in the city of Detroit. 
and um, and, and put people first. And yeah. that, that is an expectation I don't think we should ever walk away from, but it is an expectation that, you know, neoliberal and all of this other kind of policy sort of moves us in a whole nother direction. And we're in this corporate thing. And this is the kind of languages we speak. And if you're not careful, you get lulled to sleep with corporate speak. And corporations do not exist for the benefit of people. Shout out to Gabe Leland, though. I mean, if I commit a crime, <laughs> I city he got a shout out. If I get a shout out. That one just blew my mind. Like, he got a rain too. He was a rain today. He was a rain today. On a day he was a rain. It's like you know, it just feels as though there is no respect for the people of a city where so many black politicians have been walked into prison just had their reputations destroyed and this man has been subject to federal and county investigations and you're shouting him out at your state of the city and thinking this is going to be okay um so that was really um that was really amazing to me you know and very trumpy very trumpy it was the, I can very trumpy very trumpy it's like in your face it's a lack of um just concern. And you know, when we look at housing and you look at subsidized housing, I want to say that you have to look at the fact that it's really expensive to live in Detroit right now. It's it really is. hard for people to find housing. The housing values have increased. So sure, you protected these LIHTC projects, which be, to be honest, these projects in most neighborhoods aren't going market rate because there is no market for, you know, mm -hmm. market rate projects. There's a couple of them downtown. But the reality is, LIHTC projects have to be, you know, extended or preserved every, and so the city did a good job of figuring that out. What I will say about this city is this city really grew under the um, leadership of Henry Ford, and he was a, um, he, he was an assembly line kind of guy. And Detroit is really fond of assembly lines. And I look at Mayor Duggan as an assembly line mayor. So the way that testing was done and the way the vaccines were issued and the way that demolitions are lined up, everything has this, you know, this very structured, you know, repetitive kind of thing that makes me feel like there's an assembly line going on. And like Henry Ford, who did some good things and accomplished some things, there's also another side to that because there's people who should be at the center of the decision-making. And Detroit has a proud history of a city that brought black power into being yes, yes, yes. in so many ways. Yes, And that power meant that citizens of the city of Detroit work collectively, fought. Our ancestors, if you have any ancestors who were here, fought for our rights. And we have the responsibility to fight to make sure that we are preserving Detroit a place for black power, black excellence, black opportunity for our children and our grandchildren. And if and when a candidate for mayor commits themselves to protecting the legacy of those investments, one of the few places in the nation people could come and get treated as equals. I grew up in Detroit and I never felt unequal to anybody, okay? So to the extent that we are preserving our city as a place of equality where people can't come in, and assume priority over the people who've been here making it happen, where businesses can't come in. And assume, remember Coleman Young, a business would sit down with Coleman Young and he'd say, where's your black staff person? They knew not to even show up in the room without a black person sitting by their side. 
And I sit in meetings downtown sometimes and it's like, am I the only black person in this room? It feels foreign yes. to not have more representation. Yes. So I know this was a lot, um, you know, but I think I appreciate what you're saying. I just feel as though what was said was not always what was the problem. It was what was not said. And then sometimes what was said was not necessarily accurate or did not really highlight some of the needs that we still need to talk about. Donna, on the point of Black uh, representation in, in, I would say, in every sector, in every entry point in our city, I, my challenge um, to these structures of power, particularly these structures that, you know, heteronormative white folks are uh, in control of to not only tout or pick out that black excellent talented tenth that you are that's palatable for <laughs> white consumption right you the, the the black folks he touted we love them we love you Jim Jenkins we love you Dennis Archer Jr but you all are part of a, a, a subset of black folk that ain't every we ain't all we ain't not we can't all be Jim Jenkins and we can't all be Dennis Archer Jr., right? Um, there, we can't all be April at Good Cakes and Bakes or King Yachty. And so my, 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 my challenge for us and my challenge to the power structure is to give space beyond this high and mighty Black, excellent, Black, talented 10th uh, that we continue to uplift and amplify. It's, we take up too much space. It takes up too much space and it is, there's more of us. It's a heavy lift though. It, it's, it is. And, and, and when I say it's it- worth it though, right? Oh, beyond, it's beyond it. But I, I'm speaking strictly politically, strictly politically, not, not even humanely, strictly politically. When, when I worked in the legislature, there was times you literally could pull the qualified voter file look under B. And if you did not see Orlando Bailey's name, oh, well, I don't care what you're calling for. You don't even vote. You not even why I'm here. You don't even weigh in on my boss winning election. And so it's that level of reality and practicality in politics, which is different than humanity and social and right and wrong and fair and equitable. None of that has anything to do with politics. Politics is just about politics. And so, yes, it would be helpful to do all those things, but politically, there's not a need or a will to invest in people who have been deemed not to have invested in themselves. And so that, and that's only going to get worse as poverty in our nation gets worse, as educational structures are interrupted in our nation and gets worse, jobs, all of those things we're going to have, to me, a class that continues to need, really need and less patience and a will to help them. And that's where um, we have to find some synergy and some, and it's not coming from politicians because again, from politicians, it's based on how many votes I get out of this precinct. If it's a hundred of y'all that vote, that's all I'm talking to. The other 900 that don't vote, I'm not talking to you. That's just the way, and we gotta figure, we gotta figure that out. Well, yeah, and it's not gonna come from our government, but there are mm -hmm. the of us. There are those of us who are in the community who have a responsibility. I look at the things and I've said for some time that if you know, you're know you not voting, you're not really functioning as a citizen, you're a subject of this government. If you're not voting and you don't have wealth and you don't have, you don't have a seat at the table, you have no social or political capital. If you, right now, 
corporations are the customers of our government. That is who our government serves. That is who our government protects. And those customers are always right, right? And people who vote, we are citizens, but when we come together and we make a shared demand, and if imagine if 80% of registered voters or people eligible to vote in Detroit showed up at the polls. There's not a part or corporation that could change things. They would have to figure out how to work with us. And so for me, I feel like, you know, Stacey Abrams has cast a shining light on the way forward, and that is democracy. We've got to get out there, we've got to vote, we've got to educate voters, and we've got to let people know that the only way to count and make government change is your vote at the polls. I so, love that Donna Givens-Davidson lecture about customers and citizens and subjects <laughs> of government. That is my favorite lecture. Listen, we're coming up on an hour. I want to give everybody an opportunity uh, to offer uh, some closing statements on their thought of, you know, the state of the city. Uh, you can mention Duggan's speech or you can give your take on what the state of the city is uh, for us to close. Um, Lewis, let's, let's start with you. I just want to say, I think this was the real state of the city address. <laughs> <laughs> this was the much more informative state of the city address. Uh, well, you know, I am just very curious to see uh, how, you know, it's an election year. And so I'm just very curious to see how Duggan's narrative uh, sticks with the majority of voters. I truly don't know. I mean, I hear a lot of rising criticisms, whether it is enough for him to uh, not become mayor again, and the debates, that's really what's on my mind as I go forward, if, if, if enough people still buy into his narrative. Uh, that's really my thoughts on this is, I mean, if enough people are believing this, essentially. Yeah, Simone? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, I've been talking to people. We need so many conversations to be had. Having a white mayor in the blackest city is something that gets discussed all the time around the country as yeah. I, I work and travel. Also, the browning of black political power in this nation yeah. is something that needs to be talked about. We need to talk to our brown brothers and sisters about what we are um, interested in and prioritizing and if we're going to be supporting each other or if we're... Um, going to be serving as support for each other to stay in their their particular roles and spaces and places how we're going to do this thing if we're going to move in together let's have some conversations about it because it matters it absolutely whether it's in new orleans when you wipe out the ninth ward and replace the representation there whether it's here in detroit whether it's in the state level uh, legislature um whether it's in congress all of that matters that we haven't had the proper conversations as we're watching this demographic change. And I think more conversations like this are important. Donna touched on it. The people really can make the difference and us coming together and figuring out how in a pandemic and in a COVID structure, we can move people to the polls to make a difference at the local level um, is absolutely positively essential. And last thing I'll say is folk are watching Detroit around the nation, so goes Detroit, particularly at the local level in so many areas, so goes the will, the impetus, the desire, um, the backbone for other people to take on some of the challenges in their city with smaller numbers. And that was one of our faves, Simone Lightfoot, giving her closing statements. Donna. Oh, I think that, you know, Detroit is an interesting point. Um, I think that there's, 
um, whenever you come through a pandemic, people are, you know, somewhat happy to be alive. And, you know, you don't have people being evicted from their homes and you don't have water shut off. So people are not experiencing some of the dark sides of, um, you know, capitalism, which doesn't care about people and some of those machineries that exist. And we have um, this, a lot of social movement around making sure people have access to food and making sure that we even talk about workers that are essential workers. And so I think we're at this point in time where when all of this is said and done, I don't know who we're gonna be, right? And I think there's this great uncertainty over who we are right now. Um, I hate to think that the fate of our people is dependent on who is in elective office. Um, Detroiters had power and strength um, long before Coleman Young became mayor. And we found out ways to exercise power through collective action. And so democracy going to the polls is one aspect of it, but you almost have to do the power building to increase democracy. So it would not surprise me if the same 20% of people who have been voting all along show up this time, it is up to us to mobilize and engage and involve the rest of the people so that whoever is mayor, whoever is on city council, governor, seat, executive, whatever, that those people understand who we are and are ready to listen to us and that we have very cogent and clear demands on them. So for me, as much as I may have an opinion about who is mayor, whoever the mayor is, you got to figure out how to work with them and make a demand. And it is not my job to be friends with the person who is controlling things. It is my job to continue to make a demand, whoever that person is. Um, we're not cool. You work for our community and I'm going to try to oversee that. So anybody who's listening to this and anything I say and thinks it's personal, it's not. It's not about dugging for me. It is really about policy and about making sure that the voices of the people that I work with, the Orlando, the people you have worked with, and Simone, the people you have known and connected with, that those voices are heard and those people have power. Stay informed and stay engaged. Listen, if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Authentically Detroit, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Any shout outs before we head out, Donna? I already shouted out um, Gabe Leland. Um, <laughs> I, I do have a shout out um, Joel Harani Harris, who is um, you know the director of sustainability for the city of Detroit, who somehow manages to be a shining light of um, you know collaboration and effort and works with us and he connected with us today about a project I'm super excited about. And um, so I wanna shout him out for continuing to provide leadership um, in, in, you know, and not making it about some of those partisan politics. I uh, wanna shout out Jerry King from um, the FCA, um, who is on the, um, the Neighborhood Advisory Council. I guess he's the chair for continuing to keep us informed as to what's going on with the Neighborhood Advisory Council. Um, and I wanna shout out somebody who contacted me, who came to a meeting that we had and contacted me today, a resident who runs a block club called the French Connection. And that is the coolest name for a block club I've ever heard of. She's on French Road near Mac and her name is Gwendolyn Douglas. 
And I talked to her for about 45 minutes today and it was everything I needed to feel good about the work I'm doing to know that people like her are doing the work inside the community. I uh, want to shout out our guest, um, my colleague, uh, Louis Aguilar, senior reporter at British Detroit. It is a pleasure and honor to have you on with us. And I am just tickled pink on the inside that we finally got Simone Lightfoot to join us here on Authentically Detroit. Thank you so much for offering your time and expertise. We, you know, we love you. You know how much we love you. Uh, until next time, everybody, thank you for listening. We want you to catch the wave.